Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Friday, the 14th of February, so happy Valentine's Day. Uh, I might be the first person to wish you that this this morning or today. Uh, I might be the only person who says happy Valentine's uh, to you today. Um, but I won't be the only one who is feeling a deep sense of gratitude um, for you. And that is because our God who is in heaven loves you, loves you, loves you deeply loves you enduringly, loves you in ways that uh, you cannot imagine and are genuinely redemptive. Life is fleeting, but love endures forever because, well, frankly, God is love. And so let me just encourage you today, um, even when human relationships disappoint or heartbreak comes or Valentine's Day isn't all uh, for you what the culture suggests it should be, you have uh, a lover of your soul, not just today but every other day. Uh, And we have a lover who is always patient and always kind uh, and one from whom we receive a love that endures forever. So I'm holding out hope that the focus today on this Valentine's Day, for those of us who are Christians, is going to be less about sort of the fleeting emotion of cards and candies and roses and hearts, although all of those things are wonderful and dark chocolate is better than milk chocolate and all of those things. Um, But I'm hoping that today we could be focused on the reality that God's love is a love that endures forever. First John 4, 7 to 16 might be a passage that you want to spend a little time in today. Have you been in the word of God today, by the way, before you are out there in the world that he so loves? Let me encourage you um, to be in passages today like John three sixteen or First John 4, 7 to 16. Here's the opening of that. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Just think about that for a moment. Those, those of us who love, whoever loves, we bear witness that we're be, we've been born of God and that we know God. What greater, what greater gift could you receive on Valentine's Day than the knowledge of the love of God? Now, verse 8 then says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So let me just encourage you today to be a person who recognizes that you have a lover of your soul. Um, Be a person today who recognizes that people are yearning, deeply, deeply yearning for love. Um, Recognize today that John 3.16 is true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is really God's valentine to each of us today. We have, uh, we are people who have been loved and know it. We are people who know love. Let us then in turn love the world, the people around us who just desperately desire today to know one thing, and that is that they are loved. 
All right, first up this morning, I'm going to have a conversation with Matthew Hawkins. We're going to talk um, about politics, but we're also going to talk about religion, and we're going to talk about how our religion affects our politics. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me again this Friday morning is Matthew Hawkins. You can find him at on Twitter at MTHawk. You can also find him on the web at MatthewTHawkins.com. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Happy Valentine's Day, Carmen, and your team. And go Team Dark Chocolate. Exactly, right? Like the the higher <laughs> the cocoa percentage, the better in my view. I mean, I'm yeah, Absolutely. I'm like an, at least an 80% person. Okay. So... Um, <laughs> But, you know, there's just a lot of milk chocolate out there today and boo milk chocolate. There you go. And white chocolate isn't even really chocolate. Like, let's just be honest about that. It's time. I know. Okay. Although my, it's my wife's favorite. She loves the white chocolate. Oh, you know, she, she can have all of too, it. But... <laughs> she, she can have all of it. All right. So, um, um, wow. We, you and I are not avoiding the topic in front of us. I know we're not. <clears throat> um, religion and politics. And I, let's go. Woo-hoo. Yeah, religion and politics. So our mutual friend... Uh, Andrew Walker has this piece posted at nationalreview.com that I just really thought was worth spending a little time in. Understanding sure. why religious conservatives would vote for Trump. This is probably the the question I am asked the most often by people who yeah. are on the Democratic side of the aisle and identify as Christians. Sure. They they really yeah. do they really are trying to understand how those of us who have religious convictions um could could continue to support Donald Trump. Now, I know that the same mystery uh, exists for um, Christians who identify also as Republicans. They are mystified how anybody uh, could be a Christian and vote for a Democrat. So that's not the conversation we're having today. Today, the conversation we're having is the situation that exists for religious conservatives. And so um, talk with us a little bit about how Andrew frames this, because I think it's really helpful. Yeah. So Andrew's point um, at National Review is a really good article. And uh, ordinarily, I would heckle him for uh, using so many words to accomplish his task. But uh, it's, you know, there's some things, especially in the space of religion and politics, that uh, it takes it takes some time and attention for us to, I think, enunciate uh, to give it worthy treatment uh, of our minds. And uh, uh, he basically lays out, look, um, amidst amidst the uh, hashtag um, uh, resistance and hashtag never Trump and, you know, hashtag pro Trump and all this kind of stuff sit, uh, folks, uh, he, he calls reluctant Trump and he basically lays out all the rationale for why, uh, religious conservatives, uh, you know, Christian conservatives in particular, uh, would vote for the guy and even consider revoting for the guy. Um, now Andrew's not making a case for 2020. He's just trying to explain how, um, people in our space, uh, vet this kind of decision. Um, and uh, he does a really eloquent job, uh, and I think uh, he ought to be given a lot of props for that. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I think one of the things he doesn't so much spell this out, um, but my observation is part of what he's doing is uh, creating a little space between, say, the media talking heads that we see um, on the right. Uh, justifying uh, and support for Trump throughout, uh, you know, 
the, the most ridiculous kinds of things that come out of the Trump administration uh, who tie themselves into intellectual pretzels trying to come up with spiritual justifications for, uh, you know, no holds barred, you know, 100 uh, percent support of President Trump. Uh, on the other hand, between, you know, so there's a separation between those folks who get all the you know, the limelight uh, and ordinary people who are just kind of going about their lives, um, but trying to participate um, when they can in the electoral process. Um, right. And uh, I think he 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 enunciated. And so they they recognize uh, so the some of the you know overreaches and uh, some of the you know the personality problems with uh, President Trump. Uh, and nevertheless, they have some fairly credible reasons for supporting um, the president uh, in, say, polling and, uh, and in the electoral booth. So I want to read one paragraph. And again, um, Matthew Hawkins and I are actually talking about a piece posted by our mutual friend Andrew Walker at NationalReview.com. And, and in here, um, Andrew says, well, well, first of all, he opens by making the observation that by this time next year, like, right, literally by this time next year, yeah. a president will have been sworn in again. Like, we, yeah. it, it will either be um, President Trump's second term, and he will have been sworn yeah. in again as the president of the United States, or we'll have a different president, and yeah. times will be, wow, fascinating for sure. Um, we will right. not lack anything to talk about. Okay, so... Here's what um, here's I'm just going to read our listeners one paragraph from this. He's basically saying, let's not wait for the postmortem. I can tell you what will happen right. now. Right. Millions of right. religious conservatives will approach their votes with a political realism that requires balancing undesirable tensions and conflicting realities. They will vote not yeah. so much for Donald Trump. Um, and, and again, I mean, because we do uh, on many cases find his language unacceptable, his treatment of some people totally unacceptable, his tweeting incessantly immature, um, but yeah. will vote against the worldview of the Democratic platform. Like there there will be a vote for Trump that is a vote against the Democratic platform. Yeah. Andrew goes on to say those who yeah. make this calculation are not sellouts, nor have they forfeited the credibility of their values carte blanche. For blind allegiance does not explain the voting relationship. That the religious conservatives are not progressives does. Between never Trump and always Trump is a third category, reluctant Trump. Voters in this category don't get the fair hearing they deserve since they defy the simple binary portrayal of religious conservatives as either offended by Trump or sold out to him. Um, I have to tell you, that's where I live. I'm I'm in the third yeah. way here. I'm in the I'm I'm not in the middle on any of the issues, um, but I am. I, I am reluctant um, because although I support the Trump administration, many, many, many of its policies and practices, there are things about the person of the president that are very, very challenging for me uh, in terms of my just unbridled support. And so yeah. um, that's often, you know, Matt, those are often the listeners that I hear from, people who think that there should just be totally um, – non-critical support of someone in political leadership. And that's yeah. not where I would be, uh, regardless of who's in the White House. You and I need to take a quick break. When we come back, um, we're going to continue sure. this conversation. And then I would love to get your input on um, just a legislative agenda that's coming up okay. this year in 2020. Um, I know that our friends over at the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, have posted their 2020 legislative agenda. I thought I might get uh, your insights on that. I'm talking with Matt Hawkins. You can find him at Matthew. Thawkins.com. We'll be right back. I want to tell you right now, I'm not afraid to say how you put the love in my 
continuing my conversation with Matt Hawkins. Um, Matt, you know, anything anything you want to do as a walk off to this conversation about Andrew's piece in National Review and the challenge that we all face in this political political year, particular yeah, political I, year, I think is the way I was yeah, supposed to say I, that. I think here's here's my conviction on this. Um, it, one of the critiques of um, one of the critiques of Walker's piece is that you know, it's one thing to say, well, you know, if reluctant, if reluctant Trumpers and and never Trumpers were really serious about this, then they would have put forward a a, a primary candidate to contest uh, Trump's GOP nomination. I, I didn't um, get enough support. I didn't get enough personal support for that idea. Right. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing, and 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 then the it's uh, not going to happen. Then, well, if you say it's not going to happen, like the the, the comeback is then, uh, well, you're you know just making political calculations and you know challenging mm-hmm. conscience. I'm like, well, here's here's the situation. I think 2020, if you're concerned about the church's political witness, uh, it took us generations to get to where it was in 2016 and where it is right now, and flipping that around and reforming that in any meaningful way is going to take longer than a single election cycle, and it's certainly going to take. Uh, longer than, um, you know, a a year long uh, presidential election. And uh, not only is there that reality, um, our church's political witness is not going to be fixed um, on the political playground. Uh, it's it's going to be fixed in the local church, and it's going to be fixed by uh, pastors and churches taking their um, I what I think is an obligation to disciple their people uh, and disciple their political consciences, uh, so that they recognize uh, that tension between the very tactical, very pragmatic act of casting a vote and our conscience, um, which plays a part. And there's a tension there. And it, it's not always all pragmatic. And it, it's not always, uh, uh, you know, it's hard to navigate your conscience through voting sometimes. Um, but I think we, we do ourselves a disservice by uh, assuming uh, we can turn this around in an electoral season um, and, and, uh, and change the hearts and minds of you know, entire congregations around the country about how to think about uh, religion and politics. Um, so la- in terms of religion thing, and politics, was, sure, yeah. go ahead. Uh, just one last comment. I think we, we've seen this parallel before. Um, so if you have people on the left, uh, you know, left of center uh, or Christians in the Democrat Party who look at Republicans who support Trump uh, and they think that, um, you know, all the worst of the Trump uh persona and, and administration, um, they they think that uh, you know, all Christian Republicans support that. Um, we saw this too uh, during Obama. Um, there are a lot of Republican Christians who thought, uh, "How could a Christian vote for President Obama, who uh, in our in our lifetime is the most pro administration?" In my view, and I was on Capitol Hill at the time, was the most uh, pro-choice, most pro-abortion administration policy-wise uh, that we had seen, and yet a lot of people, uh, people who I know are Christians, uh, and even personally, you know, even pro-life, voted for President Obama for a whole host of reasons. Um, and right. so we've seen this this kind of uh, presumptions about um, fellow believers uh, go both ways in the past 10 years. That's, that's how I'll leave it. 
All right. So let's pivot to a conversation about um, a, a legislative agenda. First of all, tell us what a, I mean, this is your this is your history. Sure. This is what you spent a really long time <laughs> doing. What is a legislative agenda and um, and and what's on the legislative agenda for Christians? And you and I are going to use the 2020 legislative agenda by the ERLC, which is the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern ba- Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. If folks want to um, sort of know where we're getting these talking points from this morning. Sure. Uh, well, it's easily easily searchable. Just search Google for uh, ERLC legislative agenda. And uh, a lot of organizations put forward every year uh, or every year or so uh, a new legislative agenda that basically says, here's what we're watching from um, from Congress. Predominantly, it's it's le- it's Congress. Uh, this is mostly legislative action. Um, sometimes they'll put in administrative policy, but mostly this is a this is what we're looking at in the next congressional year or two. And, and so what's uh, on this, the leg- what's on that legislative agenda? Yeah, so um from from kind of the, to get the backstory, uh ERLC does this every year. It's gone back uh probably 10 years or more. And basically staff take what they've known from the past year about the activity in Congress and then their conversations with uh, people on the hill and uh they kind of anticipate what's uh what could get play in the next year. And what you see in a legislative agenda, if you compare two of them <laughs> adjacent, uh sometimes not a whole lot of difference uh, because things in Congress move slowly. And so you're kind of doing your best to uh, anticipate what might might get some attention this year and uh, and kind of go from there. So the ERLC uh, has a whole host of categories, sanctity of human life issues that uh, cover predominantly um, abortion-related policy, the uh, Born Live Abortion uh, Survivors Protection Act, um, the Pain Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, uh, the Conscience Protection Act. Again, these are things that your listeners probably have heard of before, but they have not been accomplished yet in, in federal Congress. So ERLC is still pushing for them. Uh, the category of religious liberty. Uh, there's something called the Child Welfare Provider Inclusion Act, which is a, sh- a long, a long, lengthy word uh, term for saying, look, uh, adoption agencies who are faith-based uh, need to be able to place adoptions with families that um, comport to the birth mother's desires and wishes, and that often means uh, faith-based, uh, fa- you know. Families who are coming to it from a faith-based perspective, and who uh, believe uh, that marriage um, and parenting should be between one man and one woman. Um, let's see, scrolling through, it's a lengthy document, but it's it's worth getting a sense of what could uh, what could get some attention this year. Uh, a lot of these things are in the back burner, but you never know uh, what kind of political moment can and push a particular bill to the forefront. Um, there's something called the Civil Rights Uniformity Act, the Equality Act. Um, uh, the Equality Act is something the ERLC and myself uh, would oppose. Um, Family and marriage legislation. There's adoption and po- foster care uh, related policies. There are, there are a lot of updates um, and reforms that could be done uh, at the federal government to help um, uh, more streamline uh, adoption and foster care related policies. Uh, and of course, uh, your listeners may know that uh, foster care has seen a spike in recent years because of the opioid crisis. So those two issues are uh, really tethered together. Uh, and they get into some international issues, too. Um, they have some uh, – there's a China religious freedom-related policy that, that could get some attention. Um, if you're concerned about uh, your national security and uh, immigration-related issues, um, you know, solving, solving the problem for dreamers. Dreamers are people who uh, – many of them now adults, but uh, – 
came here as children with their parents uh, due to no fault of their own. They find themselves uh, in, you know, in no man's land uh, with as far as citizenship. And so they come here, you know, sometimes many as infants uh, or children, and uh, they grow up and all of a sudden <laughs> they, they want to go to apply for a driver's license and their parents tell them, um, by the way, uh, you have an illegal status right now because you're not actually an American citizen. Uh, and so you have all kinds of uh, issues with uh, what what do we do um, policy-wise related to people who themselves have broken no law, who were minors, and yet uh, really find themselves in a, in a sticky situation um, with really no way forward. Uh, so we need a solution for dreamers, and that's something that ERLC has supported for years. Uh, so that's kind of a skip a rock across the ERLC 2020 legislative agenda. And uh, it's a document that uh, I used to uh, contribute when I was in the D.C. office. So, Matt, um, thank you, as always, for, uh, you know, sort of helping us survey the landscape and then go deep on uh, on certain things. Uh, obviously, we're going to have a lot to talk about in the weeks and months and even years to come uh, as we continue to pursue Christ in the midst of what is a very polarized political season here in the United States of America. Thank you, my brother. Thank you. Happy Valentine's Day. And good, Happy get Valentine's some Day. dark chocolate. Yeah, go, go get your wife some white chocolate, which isn't really chocolate. All right. Have, have a great day. <laughs> We'll be right back. All right. My um, one of my conversations today sort of with myself and others is in relationship to social media and our participation in it. Obviously, you know, the hashtags that are trending today are around the topic of love and Valentine's Day and and then some anti-Valentine's Day type things. And so how how are we going to engage today on social media? Who are we going to be out there um, on that major platform or on those major platforms? Do you engage on Facebook Messenger? Like that's the one that I keep, um, I, I keep deleting because it causes me the most problems. Uh, I'm going to talk with Chris Martin from Lifeway Social Voices about whether or not F- Facebook Messenger in particular is safe for our kids. And then we're also going to talk about the top five social media trends for 2020. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. It's a banner day for the greeting card industry. You'll likely buy a card and gift for your sweetheart today. But what about your kids? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Every day is an opportunity to build into your kids the love and value they crave. And perhaps today, Valentine's Day, will remind you that teens in your life need to be celebrated. They'll naturally gravitate to the people who genuinely value them. So make that a priority in your home. Don't compare your teen to others. Tell your daughter you love her. Don't move away from your son when he makes a mistake. On Valentine's Day and every day, let your teen sense your love. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. So returning now to uh, my weekly, well, I don't know that I get to talk to him every week, bi-weekly Every once in a while, I get to talk with Chris Martin from Lifeway Social Voices, and today is one of those days. Chris, welcome back. 
Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here. I don't think we talk every week. Maybe it's every other week. No, but I, I'm glad. I think it's a couple, couple weeks. Yeah, a couple weeks a month. But it's a joy. And so thank you so much. Okay, so when we, when we think about um, the various apps and social media platforms where we engage as adults, we have to also think about where we encourage or allow younger people to engage. I just personally, Facebook Messenger, I find the most personally problematic, um, I don't know, place, space, app out there in terms of uh, one one where I feel like the most trouble is caused to me personally, just in terms of people sending me bad stuff or my information ending up in bad places. So am I rightly skeptical about Facebook Messenger and um, and how should we be protecting our kids yeah, it's a good it's a good question. Um, I think anytime we're skeptical of Facebook, we're rightly skeptical. Um, and that's not because I have anything against Facebook, you know, uh, for some of the typical reasons some people might have some issues against it. You know, the the idea that they might be suppressing certain kinds of political content or things like that. The people have a lot of gripes with Facebook, but my biggest uh, kind of gripe with Facebook or the or the reason that. Um, the reason that I don't trust Facebook is because they've shown time and time again pretty routinely that um, they play fast and loose with user data. Um, so back in the day when Facebook first started, their company motto uh, until – I want to say it was until like 2010 or 2012, five or six years into their existence. It was move fast and break things. And that's a great name, uh, kind of a great motto for a company, especially like a – a trailblazing Silicon Valley um, social media company until you start becoming almost like a social utility uh, where people are putting tons of personal data into your platform and then move fast and break things can start to be a little bit more precarious, which is probably why they ended up, you know, kicking that motto to the curb. Um, but I think in my opinion, Facebook's, and this is only my opinion because their actions have demonstrated this over the past few years, that despite the fact that Facebook's motto of move fast and break things is no longer a an official company motto, it still seems to me that that drives a lot of their thinking. So I, I don't want to get into all the technical examples. I have a blog post that people can find if they want to read this. There are a number of books or other articles that have been written on these things in the past. But Facebook has the least amount of public trust out of any online platform, Google, Amazon, you know, any of those as least as less public trust than the federal government. Um, people don't trust Facebook. And for good reason, they've had all kinds of data scandals. And a lot the big one that comes to everyone's mind is the 2016 election. That was just one of multiple, perhaps the one that got the most press. Um, but for a while, for instance, just using one example, if you used Facebook Messenger and you were on an Android phone, Facebook could scrape all of your – scrape is a technical term. It may not sound like a technical term, but that Facebook had permission through its privacy policy to scrape all of your text messages for data to use to advertise to you. Um, now, that doesn't mean somebody at Facebook was sitting there on their computer reading your text messages. They're very clear that they don't they don't look at or, or use your data for advertising. But what they what they mean by that is we don't match up your data to your face, you know, like you would imagine someone sitting in a dark room looking at all of your data. But what they do is they say, oh, you were texting about the fact that you just uh, you might want be in the market for a new minivan. So then if a if a car dealership decided they wanted to create 
a Facebook ad to target people who may be in the market for a minivan, which you can do on Facebook, you would fall into that category to receive that ad. It's not like somebody said, oh, Jane Smith said she wants a minivan. I'm going to make sure that she sees this ad. But because you posted about that or whatever else, you fall into that category. And so that's just how Facebook ad works. That's how they make billions of dollars. And so the Messenger Kids app is an app that Facebook designed specifically for kids to be able to message their parents or other safe selected, you know, individually selected friends or family members um, to be able to contact them without having a full blown, you know, phone for text messaging or something like that. And Facebook, Facebook adamantly says that none of the messages that are exchanged through messenger kids are used to target kids with advertising. There are no ads in the messenger kids app. And they, they say, yeah, we, we look at, you know, we use messenger, like regular Facebook messenger, uh, messages to create ads and target ads, but we don't do that with messenger kids. Um, and I just don't trust Facebook. Now I'm not saying that they are straight up lying because that would be pretty easy to find out. Um, but in the past, how Facebook has worked is they have made mistakes or, uh, had an accident and all of their mistakes or accidents just happen to favor advertisers and and not users. So it's more likely that they accidentally leak out data from its, their users than they accidentally withhold user data from advertisers. So Facebook just has a history of making mistakes that benefit their bottom line and benefit their advertisers rather than the other way around. So uh, the reason I wrote this blog post, is Facebook Messenger kids safe, is because my wife works in a counseling office and there was someone who asked her, hey, is this a safe app for my kids to be using, for me to be using with our kids? And she texted me and she was like, hey, I think you know, you're a trusted voice on this. I think this is something that you should write on. And she doesn't usually suggest stuff to me. Um, I, I think it, I'm, I'm fortunate if I can get her to read my, my, uh, my blog post. But she suggested it. So I was like, great, I'm going to write. This is a need people have. And I would not let my kid use Facebook Messenger kids, but that's just me and, and that's kind of why, I guess. So I appreciate that perspective. I think it's really helpful for us to not only recognize how dangerous a platform it can be, might be for our kids, but you know, Chris, I gotta tell you, I guarantee you there's just a lot of people, including myself, who feel like we, um, you know, it's out there, tons of people are using it, it must be safe. And you know, to, to hear you say, hey, if you're on this platform, um, uh, you know, the company behind it, in this case, Facebook, has the right via their privacy policies to, to go in and scrape, there's a new term I've l learned today, um, all of my text messages for information for targeting ads. I actually, it actually helps me understand how some advertising ends up in front of me. Like, right? Like, I'm, it's no longer, it should not be a mystery to me um, why I get ads for something if it is something that I have discussed in a private conversation or a conversation that I thought was private, but because I am on a particular social media platform, none of my conversations are private. Totally. There's a, there's a technical term. I'm reading a book right now that I highly recommend to people called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. It is mm. a long read. You'll be reading yeah, it for months. Scary. Uh, it's, yeah, right. But the it's all about this, and it's and it focuses a lot on what's called behavioral surplus, which is basically 
on social media or even Google or whatever else, the actions you take, the clicks you make, the words you type in, not just what you put in the about me section, but like if you created a status update that said, hey, my anniversary is coming up. Does anybody have any fun ideas for you know what to do for our anniversary? Um, then somebody could go in and create a Facebook ad to a restaurant. Hey, we want to target people whose anniversary is in the next couple of weeks. And then you would you would receive that ad. And it's, it's called behavioral surplus. And so that's how social media makes their money is by serving ads to you based on things that you've input into a platform. So I think what my biggest piece of advice for everyone, uh, not just as it pertains to kids, but everyone is un- assume that everything you put into every social media platform or everything you do on your phone is available to use to advertise to you or for public consumption. Just assume privacy doesn't exist. Um, and I know people say that they don't have anything to hide um, and like, why, why do I care? And that's a whole other discussion that we probably don't have time for this morning, but I think it could lead to really scary things that nobody wants, regardless of if you have anything to hide. And I think it's important that we kind of nip that in the bud and not let it slide into places we'd all be uncomfortable with it going. All right, that is Chris Martin from Lifeway Social Voices. He and I will be back in just a moment. We are going to uh, to pivot to another conversation. This time we're going to talk about the, f- the top five social media trends for 2020. We'll be right back. Returning to my conversation now with Chris Martin from Lifeway Social Voices. You can find him at... Well, you can find him online. He has a blog, chrismartin.com. Um, Chris, let's talk about the, I don't know, the biggest trends in social media um, this year. Sure. So there are a couple of ways you can look at different trends. One is kind of from a technical standpoint, but I don't think your listeners are going to be interested in that. <laughs> so I wrote an article about a month ago on uh, trends that uh, churches should be aware of. And I think it just in general, kind of popular level social media trends people should be aware of. So here here are a few trends uh, on social media in 2020 that I think some folks should be aware of. And some of these may be interesting and some of them may not be. But uh, first is that every platform is increasingly different. So back in the day, when I first started working in social media seven or eight years ago, um, you know, you could post the same thing to Twitter, to Facebook, to Instagram, you know, relatively speaking, uh, with some modifications based on length or having an image on Instagram and things like that. And it would kind of work. You know, people were automating social media a lot more back then, kind of, and um, just posting the same thing everywhere. And that strategy used to work uh, a lot. But today, um, every platform is increasingly different. So Twitter has its own little uh, culture and niches and ways that content is presented. Facebook is kind of the behemoth that that is the most general and almost, you know, all kinds of different content works there. And then Instagram is very specific. A certain aesthetic can work on Instagram depending on your audience. And obviously an image needs to be there or a video. So every platform is increasingly, is increasingly different. Um, second is that people are moving from more public spaces to private spaces. And this is the trend that's most interesting to me. Um, the, the whole premise of social media when it first kind of became a big thing back in the early 2000s was um, a place, you know, social media was a place to connect in public with people across the world on MySpace or things like early iterations of Facebook. And and it was very it was all very public. I mean, obviously, there was some private messaging going on, but it was it was very public. And today and through the 2010s, it, it went, you know, 
public was all was all it was really about. Some you know people use Facebook Messenger and things like that, but people tend to connect one to one and privately more through text message than on social media. Well, that's starting to change. Um, social media is becoming a lot more about private spaces like Facebook groups or Instagram direct message or WhatsApp uh, than it is uh, than it is even about posting publicly anymore. I think a lot of folks just in conversations I've had kind of anecdotally are getting tired of posting publicly all the time. I mean, I'm posting to Facebook less than I ever have. Um, and I think that's the case with a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. It's just hard to keep up with. And it's a little, the novelties worn off a little bit, but, um, so people are moving more private spaces. Um, Facebook ads continue to be effective. That's something I just talked with you about. If you're if you're someone here who's listening runs social media, Facebook ads are effective because Facebook users share more information about themselves than Twitter users do or than Instagram users do. And so Facebook ads work because they uh, collect more data on their users than anyone else. Uh, TikTok is huge. Uh, TikTok is huge. It's, it's going to be what defines social media in 2020. I mean, it already has, and it, and it didn't. It didn't come out in 2020. It's been around for a little while, but it's really exploding. And it's TikTok is having more effect on culture, especially culture among young people than any social media platform. It's really it's a short form performance social media. Uh, there are two kinds of social media, really. There are there are social media that's meant to be you know social to connect with one another, kind of peer to peer social media. And then there's social media that's more used for performance. So that'd be TikTok or YouTube uh, is used more to perform than really to connect. Though connection certainly happens there. And TikTok is just a huge short form performance medium uh, and it will continue to have a huge effect. Uh, and then the last trend that I think is is not really a new trend, but it's one that's continuing is that YouTube is still the biggest social media platform in the world. Um, and it, it will continue to be the biggest social media platform in the world. Um so I think uh, I think it's important for people to pay attention to it and see what's going on on it and um, and not not assume it's just a place to post uh, videos and host videos. So I think that uh, the the proliferation of social media platforms and the sort of pressure Maybe other people don't experience this. I experience pressure to like post everywhere all the time or have some sort of, you know, engagement plan where you're going to do this every day. You're going to do this once a week. You're going to do this on this day at this particular time. And it's exhausting. And the uh, and they only seem to continue to multiply. Um, if if a person were only going to engage on one social media platform, the decision is really based on who else is there and what you want to accomplish. Is Is that correct? Yeah, it really is. Like, I mean, it, like it comes why down are you to, there? You have to you have to answer that question. Like, yeah. Why am I on this particular platform? Yeah, totally, totally. So why would I be on LinkedIn versus YouTube or TikTok? I'm not going to be. Yeah, on TikTok, I think, by the way, I'm just not. I, that's yeah. just I just I can't imagine I'm going to be there. Idea. What? Yes, yeah. Thank you. Whew, off, um, I'm, I can take I, that off I, my I list. Think, it really comes down to who who you're trying to connect to and why you're trying to connect. So LinkedIn would be for more professional connection, more more networking. I can't stand LinkedIn because it feels like I'm at a networking event all the time, and that just feels like my <laughs> biggest nightmare. Um, so so network, you know, you, uh, LinkedIn is about like 
uh, business to business, you know, if you're trying to make connections at a conference, that's LinkedIn. It's like a conference on a social media platform. Facebook, all the other platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter can be used. Well, Facebook and Instagram more for connecting with friends. Twitter more with connecting with the world probably or with ideas and with news. And TikTok and YouTube for consuming entertainment. You know, that's that I go to I watch YouTube more than I watch Netflix these days to to consume news or entertainment or things like that. So it really just depends on what you want to use it for. All right, I'm clearly going to have to figure out how to use YouTube because I I clearly don't know. Chris, you always um you always open a window to a world Okay, so on this Valentine's Day, one of the things that uh that in our family, at least we rehearse a sort of the, you know, how did you meet? Tell us the backstory. Um, and it's always helpful, I think, for kids and grandkids to know that about uh, their parents and grandparents. So be prepared with that conversation and that story today. Good opportunity to remember when. Um, and if you're a single person uh, in, and you're not in, you know, a quote unquote romantic relationship, like don't don't stress out about that. You have a lover of your soul, right? You have a lover of your soul, and, um, and God loves you in ways and with a magnitude that no human being ever can or will. Uh, if you're looking for something just in terms of a conversational topic on the Valentine's Day front today, uh, major dating platforms actually now include filtering for politics. I, 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 I suppose that doesn't surprise me. Um, however, um, I do find it an, an interesting way to approach a conversation today in terms of the, you know, how are people meeting and then how are people uh, determining whether or not they are compatible or incompatible. Actually, the starting point is now a political conversation, not anything else, not a religious conversation, uh, not a conversation about, I don't know, whether or not you like cake or pie, um, but it literally is a political conversation and who you are for and or who you are against politically is apparently determining who people are willing to even uh, have a meal with, let alone go on an, uh, a real date. Well, there you go. All right. Um, so today, just remember, Jesus is the lover of your soul. And happy Valentine's Day. We got another uh, We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.